Coming up on Harvard Chan This Week in Health, what do Americans know about Zika? A new poll reveals some major misperceptions about the virus. Plus, examining President Obama's cancer moonshot. It has broad support from the public, but we'll explain why some researchers are critical and striving to be net positive. The net positive, in a nutshell, really just means that we give more than we take. The summit that aims to change how businesses view sustainability and health. Hello and welcome to Harvard Chan This Week in Health. I'm Amy Montemiro. And I'm Noah Levitt. We begin this week with a new poll showing that many Americans don't know key facts about Zika virus. Harvard Chan researchers surveyed more than 1,200 adults across the U.S., including 105 households where someone is pregnant or considering getting pregnant in the next year. We want to break down some of the key findings among that group, as those are the people most at risk for the negative effects of Zika virus. So here are the numbers. One in four people were not aware of the association between the Zika virus and the birth defect microcephaly. One in five believes incorrectly that there is a vaccine to protect against Zika virus. And four in ten do not realize that Zika can be sexually transmitted. And there's also uncertainty about how Zika might affect future pregnancies. 39% of those surveyed believe that if a woman who is not pregnant is infected with Zika, that the virus is likely to harm future pregnancies. This contrasts with recent guidance from the CDC. Officials there say that women who have Zika symptoms should wait at least eight weeks before trying to get pregnant, and men who have been infected with Zika should wait at least six months. But beyond that, there should not be a risk of birth defects. We spoke about these results with the poll's director, Jillian Steelfisher, a research scientist in the Department of Health Policy and Management at the Harvard Chan School. She says that health officials now have a key window to spread correct information about Zika virus before the mosquito season heats up in the U.S. Very often in public health, we are chasing the problem after it occurs. And tragically, I think we're doing that somewhat in other countries. And so the question is, moving forward, where the world has this information, and particularly within the U.S. mainland, can we use this opportunity to reach out to people at risk and to increase broader public awareness and have them have the right information about the right risks? think of kind of concentric rings around the different parts of the public that you need to connect to. So at the sort of center of the bullseye is people who are at most immediate risk for some of the negative associations with with Zika virus. So reaching out to pregnant women and their partners, women who are about to become pregnant and their partners, and women who are sort of at risk of becoming pregnant and their partners. How do we reach them? Well, broad public health messaging, um, you know, public health institutions can reach out. There's also opportunities for um, partnerships between public health and clinicians. You know, people tend to trust their doctors um, or their other healthcare providers. And so linking with professional associations, linking with clinicians to get them that information is really critical. And there are misconceptions among the general public when it comes to Zika virus. For example, a third of those surveyed believe that Zika can be transmitted through coughing or sneezing, which it can't. Steel Fisher says that misperceptions like these could lead some people to take unnecessary or inappropriate precautions. To read more of the poll results, head to our website, hsph.harvard.edu. And Amy, as we track the evolving Zika outbreak, the World Health Organization announced this week that the West African Ebola outbreak is no longer an international health emergency. The WHO's emergency committee says that the risk of international spread of Ebola is now low. The epidemic sickened more than 28,000 people and killed more than 11,000. Despite that declaration by the WHO, clusters of Ebola are still being seen in West Africa. For example, officials in Guinea recently confirmed five cases of the virus. And while the WHO says more clusters like this are likely, they do believe that health officials in West Africa are capable of responding.
President Obama's cancer moonshot has been one of the major health stories of 2016. Of course, that's the president's billion-dollar push to increase research into the disease, and it has broad public support. A recent poll from the Harvard Chan School in STAT found that 8 out of 10 Americans support at least a 20% increase in cancer research funding. But the moonshot has also drawn criticism from some cancer researchers who say it focuses too much on treatment and not enough on prevention. And we spoke about the cancer moonshot with Lorelai Mucci, an associate professor of epidemiology at the Harvard Chan School. And we started our conversation by talking about President Obama's bold proposal to, quote, cure cancer. This is a very exciting time for cancer treatment. Uh, There are a number of cancers for which there's been major progress in uh, curing or at least extending life and good quality of life for a number of different cancers. At the same time, I think it will be challenging in the next five years to think about curing all cancer. And I think we need to think about these things hand in hand with prevention. We see the major successes that have happened in prevention and how that really has led to decreases in incidence and mortality for some of the big cancers. Uh, For example, lung cancer, um, the the large mortality decrease we've seen in the United States is really due to uh, decreases in smoking rather than increased success in treatment. What's the right balance there in terms of treatment versus prevention? I think perhaps it's not thinking about how to divide the funding up, but actually thinking of ways to synergize research that happens across those sort of three groups of areas. So increasing population science research uh, together with basic science research and and focus on on treatment. So I think it's sort of thinking about how to uh, create funding programs that increase uh, multidisciplinary approaches to, to this problem of cancer. Is there ever an issue at all in terms of public awareness with getting people to understand the nuances of cancer and cancer research that cancer isn't one monolithic disease? I think that people do see cancer as a single disease. But even within a specific cancer, for example, breast cancer, we actually, even that is not one single disease. We know for many cancers, there are subtypes that may be either molecular subtypes or other subtypes that may respond differently to therapies. And then on the other hand, what's also very interesting is the public perception about specific cancers themselves that's based on sort of social awareness. So for example, breast cancer has a lot of activism around it, but there's other cancers, for example, a cancer like bladder cancer or even pancreatic cancer, which doesn't have that same activism around it and yet can be a really big burden in public health. It's challenging on multiple levels on the public perception about the importance of cancer and what cancer really is. With the cancer moonshot, I'm wondering if you think there's a risk at all of setting expectations too high. Presenting it as a moonshot, really energizing this this field and energizing the amount of funding priority going into cancer research it will be a great thing. I guess it could be the, uh, disappointing to people who um, may not realize realistically it does take, even, even if you start today identifying novel drug treatments, if you want to focus on that area, it, it ultimately takes about 15 years before a new drug will get into the market. So I think keeping the energy of a moonshot, but also think critically about what's our five-year plan, what's our 10- and 20-year plan, and having that sustainability of investment over time will be really critical. Mucci said the focus on funding cancer research is especially important for young scientists. She says that many are being forced to shift their research to other areas because it can be so difficult to secure funding to study cancer. Thank you. 
Cancer patients who choose to spend their final days at home may live longer. That's according to a new study from researchers in Japan published in the journal Cancer. They studied more than 2,000 terminal cancer patients and found that those who received palliative care at home lived as long as those who received similar care in the hospital. In fact, those who were the sickest, patients with just days or weeks to live, actually lived longer if they chose to go home, living an average of four to seven days longer. Researchers aren't sure why those who stayed at home live longer, but they did note that additional treatment in the hospital, such as IV drips for hydration or antibiotics, did not affect how long a person lived. President Obama is taking more action this week to combat the country's heroin and opioid painkiller epidemic. One proposal would allow doctors to prescribe the medication commonly used to treat opioid addiction to more patients. The president's plan will also increase training for doctors around opioids. Starting in the fall, more than 60 medical schools will require students to be trained in responsible opioid prescribing. Last week, the FDA announced it was adding warning labels to many commonly prescribed painkillers. There has been significant progress in the fight against HIV and AIDS in recent years, but high costs associated with the disease could threaten that success. That's the finding of a new study led by researchers at the Harvard Chan School. They looked at nine African countries most affected by HIV and predicted the cost of the disease through 2050. Researchers found that the price tag for treatment and prevention would be $98 billion at current levels and $261 billion if coverage is scaled up. That includes expanding antiretroviral treatments to every person with HIV. We spoke with one of the study's authors, Rafat Atun, a professor of global health systems at the Harvard Chan School. He says that many countries will not be able to afford these costs, which means that new sources of funding will be needed. One has to be careful with complacency. That's a huge risk. HIV epidemic is not over and is not likely to be over in the near future. And financing obligations are large and real. There are huge risks if the funding is interrupted because transmission will increase and we'll lose many of the gains that uh, we've been able to achieve over the last uh, 25 to 30 years. Atun says that one example of an innovative source of funding is UnitAid, a global health initiative that is funded by a small fee on airline tickets in certain countries. That fee has helped UnitAid raise more than a billion dollars since 2007, and that money is then used to buy drugs directly from pharmaceutical companies. Finally in this episode, how can companies do business in a way that's healthy for their employees and the planet? That's the question that will be discussed at an upcoming summit hosted by the Center for Health and the Global Environment at the Harvard Chan School. The Shine Summit in June explores how companies can be net positive. And that's a simple concept according to Gregory Norris, one of the co-directors of the summit. A net positive in a nutshell really just means that we give more than we take or that we do more good than harm. It says, yes, we want to um, continue to shrink the harm we do, but It basically says that's not enough, and there's so much more we can do. One of the goals of the summit is to get companies to think critically about how their operations can be more sustainable. And that means taking a closer look at how products are made, a holistic approach that examines the whole supply chain. For example, Nora says a locally grown tomato may actually have its roots around the world. Locally grown tomatoes in Quebec, for example, include some significant sourcing The seeds are initially germinated in China, and research was done on those seeds in France. And then the um, seedlings, the plants, you know, initially uh, aren't 
aren't even uh, generated in Quebec. They're just brought to Quebec once they're a seedling and they're planted there for, for final growth and harvesting. If that product has a global supply chain, you can see how virtually everyone does. And that holistic approach also extends to the health of employees at companies. Eileen McNeely, another director of the summit, says that creating a healthy workplace extends beyond obvious areas such as workplace safety or wellness programs. If companies are really focused on creating a healthy environment, that means that it's not just a physical environment, but it's the social relationships, the trust and respect that they have for employees, and the amount of autonomy that employees have over their work life, and actually the boundaries that they can navigate between home and work. So these things are very important, and it actually makes it I think very clear that for um, employee health, it's not just a a one-sided responsibility of employees acting more healthily. It's actually companies also stepping up and making sure that the psychosocial and physical work environment is conducive to well-being. If you're interested in learning more about the summit or registering for it, visit chgeharvard, that's all one word, dot org. That's all for Harvard Chan This Week in Health. I'm Amy Montemiro. And I'm Noah Levitt. You can listen to this podcast anytime by visiting our SoundCloud page, soundcloud.com slash harvardpublichealth, or visit hsph.me slash thisweekinhealth to learn how you can subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you like what you hear, we'd love you to take the time to review this podcast.